That's why we just published a new book on designbetter.com called Business Thinking for Designers, which is going to help you bring a business mind to design. And it can also transform your career and the work that you do in your company. In this book, author Ryan Rumsey is going to coach you on speaking design in the language of business, and he also shares some essential strategies to effectively communicate with your business partners. He's also got some great tools, tips, and frameworks that you can put straight to work. In this episode of the podcast, we sit down with Ryan Rumsey about why an analytical approach to storytelling is crucial to conveying your vision, how to prepare for negotiations, and some of the ways that this book can help not just managers, but also individual contributors to design. We hope you enjoy our chat with Ryan. And if you're eager to download the book now for free, just head on over to dbtr.co slash business. That's dbtr.co slash business. Thanks for listening. Now, on to the show. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto is also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Brian Rumsey, founder of Second Wave Dive, a very unique new business we'll talk about, and author of Business Thinking for Designers, newly published on designbetter.com. Thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here today with you all. Maybe let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing, Ryan. So your career is really interesting. You were at Nestle in Switzerland. You were at Apple. You were at Electronic Arts. And you were at USAA most recently. Your work has always occupied this intersection of design, thinking like a designer, but also thinking like a business leader as well, which is the core tenet of your book, Business Thinking for Designers, and we'll, and we'll get into that. But talk to us about Second Wave Dive and what you're doing, because it seems like it's such an important service that you're offering right now as we're recording in the midst of coronavirus and uh, a lot of isolation and businesses making this big transition from being IRL on-site together to being remote and leaders kind of stumbling their way through some scary times. Right. I agree. We're living in a surreal time. There's a lot of kind of uncertainty, maybe perhaps some fear that folks are going through right now. Just as a little. <laughs> make these transitions. So uh, Second Wave Dive, my company, the name of it is an homage to one of my favorite good, bad films of all time, Flash Gordon of 1980. But I think more of it is about a, a second wave of me and diving into some topics with the people that I work with. So we're really twofold. Second Wave Dive is a professional development company, so education company, but is particularly focused on mid-career development. That is to say, when designers are moving out of the craft sort of focus of their careers, and now they begin to lead teams, lead organizations, and really have to work with cross-functional partners and collaborate 
with cross-functional partners in ways that perhaps they didn't while they were focused on craft. I develop a lot of boutique curriculum and training and structures to help build those uh, all-important relationships and gain more trust with cross-functional partners. It's design, but it's all intended to help with the empowered team model. The second part of what we do is what I'd say is unconsulting. So if you think about why consultants are typically hired by a company, it's, it's because a lot of companies are dealing with decision fatigue. There's so many decisions to be made. Quality decisions are then deteriorating because simply there aren't enough sort of skills and time for people to make these decisions. And so companies hire consultants to come in and provide some expertise and some framing on strategic questions. And the benefits they get are extra horsepower and outside perspectives. But all of that is kind of temporal. It's a few weeks of a project and they get a little bit of expertise. And then they're solely reliant on the consultant to come back and help. And so unconsulting is me helping companies get out of that cycle. I'd rather them reduce the need for that temporal help. I'd come in and I help empower the teams to learn new ways of working and help with that decision fatigue themselves so mm -hmm. they're not so reliant on others. As part of your work with your current company, what are some of the things that you've learned that you've brought into the book that you've written for us? So there's a great case study that I'm working on right now with a design lead at a very large enterprise company. And some of the things that I'm learning through all this is that I think a lot of designers are particularly feeling at a crossroads when they have to then start talking to cross-functional partners. And it's almost like a, a mini anxious state because they are still very much spending their time with their teams and their craft and focused on practice but nobody's really giving them guidance on now how to negotiate and tell a story in a way that talks about their rationale of decision-making. And so what I'm finding through all this is that designers are earning that trust, not because it's a, a necessarily a, a quantified metric, but they're saying things like, hey, you know what? Nobody's interrupting me during meetings anymore. Mm. nobody's looking at their phones anymore while I talk or things like, Hey, my boss is now coming to me for advice and that never happened before. And I'm now being recognized to do more than just say, make things pretty. My business partners are redoing their business strategies or sales strategies because they've now talked to us. That's the kind of response that I'm looking for when working with, either students that come into my courses or with companies that want a little more of this kind of unconsulting, if you will. How much of that do you think is due to a shift in the language that these design leaders are using? We, you know, as designers, we have a specific vocabulary around design thinking and design sprints and then the kind of more craft-based things. And through this book, you teach some of the language of business and kind of speaking design in the language of business. So how much of that shift do you attribute to just speaking this different language? I'd say it's about half. 
So learning some vocabulary is great. Learning new terms and how they're applied is fantastic. But the second half is seeing with new eyes. We as designers talk about empathy all the time. And I think for many of us, we are the facilitators of that, encouraging others to do that. But I like to challenge designers and say, are you empathetic with your colleagues? Do you know what they're on the hook for day to day? Do you understand what is painful for them or the pressures that are on them or what they might gain if they're successful? So we've talked about the the art of letting other people have your way sometimes as this kind of concept. So learning the language is one thing. Applying it is that second half that is all important. An example of that is while I was at Electronic Arts, I, I worked in IT. I worked in the IT organization and we were focused on employee experience. And coming in, we were very sort of rooted in project management, process management. And so there were terms used like stage gates or phase gates, which if you understand, it's an old school kind of waterfall process. So rather than just inventing or bringing in my new design structure, I talked to them about how product management also has phase gates. We just used, reused, and remixed the same terms to kind of introduce a, a new approach. So I like to call it uh, Weird Al Yankovicking it. It's all about remixing or sampling the things that are already valued and understood and then just creating a new spin on it. We talked about figuring out the language, but there's also a lot more to making that gear shift. If you are a design leader and you're trying to think more like a business leader, what are the other things that people need to take into account to make sure that design is more valuable. I think a lot of designers, design leaders, they think about craft for a long time, and then they realize at a certain point that craft will only take them so far. What is it that they need to be thinking about to make that transition to a business leader? One of the things that I can say is that designers, we are hired, we are paid, we have salaries or we're contracted out to provide value and work. At the C-suite level, the expectation is that you're going to help bring a competitive advantage. You're going to help bring some type of customer benefit and, let's say, financial or viability benefit to the organization. And I think that's a big shift that designers need to make in order to become that business leader. When we talk about craft, that is really an operational focus. It is how we do things better than we did before in order to bring that value, say, to customers or to the financial side. And so learning the language is one thing, but also understanding how the flow of goods, how the flow of services, how the company makes money, what the uh, overall strategy of the company is, and how design practice, if you will, craft, then intersects with that. Is this huge shift that it's, yes, we're here to make better experiences for our customers. And in return, that also has to bring some type of benefit to the company to keep it going, to make it sustainable, to allow it to continue to do what it needs to do. Patagonia is one of my favorite examples. 
They do these amazing things as a B corporation. They contribute back and they have principles that aren't just financial, but sustainability or, or societal values. But in the end, they have to make revenue and turn profit in order to then contribute those societal and sustainable contributions back. And so that's these steps that designers need to make is to understand that at the end, it's about competitive advantage and keeping a business ahead of its competitors. Just plainly saying that is the projects, the work that we choose to do inside of the design team should create value for the business in some way. It's so often design, it kind of operates from a moralistic uh, <laughs> territory of like, this is the right thing to do. This looks good. It feels good. It's very user-centric. All of which are valid perspectives to take on our work. But if we don't also feed the business, the business won't feed us. That's right. One of the other aspects of craft that I see a lot where our business friends are still struggling with is a, a pretty simple question that I ask when I go into an organization. And so I'll come into a design team and I'll say, what is great design? And I can tell you that every single time I've asked that question, I get a different answer from designers on the team. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that, from a business leader perspective, a counterpart perspective, is that when I hear 12 different answers from 12 different designers, I think designers are making it up. I think they don't have an idea of what great design is here for this company and for our competitive advantage. So why should I trust you beyond just making something pretty? When designers start to shift that mindset and say, yes, we are about the user and then getting into how this impacts our business, it's really going from sort of generalized design principles things you see with Dr. Patty Moore or Dieter Rahm's type principles into what I'd say are like localized principles. Localized for the benefits of our organization that are based on the values of our organization and the competitive advantage of our organization. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's up. LIFTdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. 
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com designbetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash Design Better. Back up better with CrashPlan. One of the other potential benefits that design brings to an organization is the idea of innovation and that innovation exists at this intersection of desirability, feasibility, and viability. It's this idea promoted by IDEO, among other people, or other organizations. How do you kind of see that playing out in the relationship between design leaders and other cross-functional leaders? One of the things that I talk about in the book is maturing IDEO's Venn diagram, if you will, a little bit. When we think about innovation, it's not just invention. It's not just to create something new. That when organizations are investing in an innovation, it is to create a competitive advantage. It is to find new ways to bring value to customers. And so I, I think particularly when it comes to innovation projects, that design has to see that it's a means to an end. That's not just on design. I've seen a lot of innovation units inside of companies that really struggle with tying it back to the overall business itself and sort of translating that really fantastic discovery work into more operational and sort of production work. 
what design offers, particularly in the innovation space, is new tools and new approaches to address a vast range of market and organizational challenges that perhaps a lot of the more operational functional units aren't, aren't going to get the time to spend on. And let's face it, in, in the digital world particularly, you're constantly having to do that work. Because if you don't do that work, you'll be behind within an instant, within a snap. Right now, right, we're all facing global pandemic, and that is going to have severe ramifications for a ton of industries. Mm -hmm. And this is where particularly if design comes in with this focus of how we can move out of the this type of phase and help an organization move out of this phase, we have to be focused more on just that moralistic or kind of just novel thing. It also has to be adopted, and it has to be adopted in a way that gives us competitive advantage. Let's dive into that a little bit more, Ryan. Thinking about this unique moment and design superpowers, how should we be contributing from an innovation perspective, from a business perspective to help overcome really challenging times and what might be a sink or swim moment for a business? Right. One of the first ways that I think that we can contribute is typically in moments, companies are having to make very big and difficult decisions. You're talking about the initial gut reaction is to control costs, mm -hmm. right? And I think in organizations that are mature with design, they are thinking about the ramifications of those decisions and the scenarios that might play out because they've made those decisions. And so I think design plays a very important role to help the companies in mature you know, organizations understand that here are the different scenarios that may play out and here are the ramifications of those scenarios. In companies that are maybe less mature with design, I think they're going to struggle with understanding that real impact and implications of making a cost control function. So this is where I think design can play a particular role of just providing some different scenarios of how one decision versus another may play out. This is you know, a little bit highlighted in the book of what we call analytical storytelling. So it's all around how our traditional narrative storytelling structures maybe don't work so well in decision-making processes. And so analytical storytelling is showing the rationale we have behind a particular recommendation and then providing a series of recommendations that perhaps multiple units can live with, multiple partners can live with. And I think without design being in the room, you'll have a lot of decisions made that one, aren't completely fully vetted and understood, long-term implications, and two, you may have some unforeseen circumstances where you know folks no longer want to be at that company or want to be at that organization because it's not a decision they can live with. So let's assume somebody's reading the book and they've learned some of the storytelling techniques that you've taught them. And in inevitably, when you present your case, there may be some negotiation at the end of that, negotiation for resources or you know other things that you might need for your team. How do you prepare for that negotiation that's going to take place after you pitch your case? I think the key important word there, Eli, is prepare. When you talk about 
the harsh realities of leadership roles, particularly, or the, the harsh realities that a lot of companies have to go with, preparation ahead of time is difficult, but less costly than dealing with it in the moment. There's tools that we introduce in the book. It's not a tool by me. It's a tool called the negotiation canvas. And it's just this deliberate process to go about and say, what are the things that we're fighting for? What are our potential walking away points? And what might our partners have for those same factors? And just by doing that preparation, that sort of upfront kind of research and understanding, even if it's a quick activity, it starts to shift your mind and prepare for when these situations happen. Let's face it, everything, even when we're not in a a global pandemic, everything with design is a negotiation. And those designers that are just intentionally preparing and planting the seeds up front of what they are fighting for, why that will bring value, uh, what they can live with, and what they will walk away from is just a huge important step to take so that they're not surprised when they get into that meeting and somebody confronts them with a negotiation right there, kind of in the moment. So preparation is the key, and there's a lot of little great tools like the negotiation canvas that just have you jot down some bullet points if you want. It's a great tool to work with your partner too. If you've got a a partner, say in product management or engineering that you've got a great trust and good relationship with, do it with them in in person. Do it with them upfront and just sort of say, here's my upfront things. And then you can do that before you get to that meeting where you're presenting now together with your kind of pre-negotiated deal rather than fighting or arguing at a table and whoever's loudest wins. So Ryan, in this unique moment, we have a situation where a lot of people are out of work, but also people who are still gainfully employed, but maybe thinking, you know, I'm at uh, maybe a, a startup or a company that's a little less stable, a little bit more influenced by the world's events. And I might need to think about a plan B and think about what my next position could be like. How does your book help people prepare for the next move in their career? That's a great question. I think right now, it's common knowledge that designers need to partner and build bridges with business, engineering, product in order to be successful. And I think that stuff is really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no real way to kind of do that. And I think historically, we haven't had any guidance. So if you're looking to move to a new role, if you're looking to establish some of these better relationships, the book is providing really pragmatic and applicable ways to help build those bridges. That's what's going to help empower you to do great design, to do great work. There are, I would say, three particular focus areas. It's getting to know your business partners in new ways as if they were humans. It's getting that business perspective. And then once you do so, you can then reflect on how your design perspective impacts that perspective. The second area of focus is all around what I'd say is like measurements, objectives, and math. So when we talk about things like OKRs and KPIs, I think there are a lot of designers who just are handed them or told to do them. And we don't have these maps of how they link into each other. How does a design or a usability objective 
line up to something like a customer objective. So we get into that, but then we also talk about that question that so many of us get is what's the return of investment on this? Mm -hmm. And I think by providing some steps to talk about math a little bit to see one, if math is being used and then two, if it is or isn't ways to kind of address it is another key area. I think when you're, we're also talking that third sort of step, when you're talking about making a shift in your career or developing some new relationships with partners, it's all about communication. So storytelling is there and there's a lot of wonderful guidance for us around storytelling to inspire folks, to help them create visions for new realities. But there are other storytelling methods that we need. And then we get into things like negotiation, as we mentioned before, but also like gauging ambition. How ambitious do we all want to be as partners before we start a project? Are we all going to the moon or are we going to 7-Eleven? And so I think the book provides a lot of pragmatic and applicable ways, steps that we can take as designers to think about all those things. What excites me about all this is it starts to break down and rebuild really this kind of systems effect of, you know, culture, if you will, of language and starts to piece them together in a way that I think is a little more pragmatic, or I hope it is, than in ways that we have before. I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of great content in the book for people who are design leaders or managing a team, but... If I'm an individual contributor, what are some of the things that I can take away from the book? I think one of the things is, as an individual contributor, understanding how to anticipate your colleagues' needs. So even as an individual contributor, you still work with others, whether they're on the design team or, or whether somebody else. And so one of the things you'll discover is just how to anticipate their needs and how that matches with your needs. I think there's a great step uh, that designers at the individual contributor level can take really to start visualizing their business to understand their business. Using their own craft, if you will, remixing their own ability to visualize, to understand, uh, to use that in a way that is also about you know, the business. The remix portion of this process of remixing a lot of the things you do as an individual contributor will help prepare you for ultimately that next job you want will give you the confidence in the role you're in now and set you up for where you might want to be in a year or two and start essentially prototyping and experimenting with that uh, so that when that job opportunity comes, you can go get it. This book is, uh, in my judgment, a really important one fills such an essential gap that designers have been very navel-gazy for a very long time, thinking only about you know what we do. And uh, for the first time, we're getting a lot of investment from the business and teams are growing and that requires more sophistication from the leader level, but also from individual contributors. So I I'm excited to see how this book helps a lot of people fill that gap and not only level up the design practice inside of organizations, big and small, but also improve some people's careers. There's really practical stuff in this. You've even said, you know, this is the book you wish you would have had when you were 
a younger designer earlier in your career. So definitely a ton of value in this book. And uh, for those who want to read it, it's actually free. It's designbetter.com. You can download it for free. It's it's out now and uh, encourage you to, to take a look at that. It's in uh, EPUB and PDF format and even an audio book too. So if you are social distancing and running outside safely, you can uh, listen to Ryan's wisdom as you go. Ryan, where can people learn more about you and Second Wave Dive and the courses that you're creating for those who are looking to level up their design leadership skills? Yeah, so you can find me at two places, Second Wave Dive, secondspelledout.com, secondwavedive.com, and then ryanrumsey.com. I do a lot of other writing, uh, and I provide that over at Ryan Rumsey. You can pretty much with those two names find me on all the social media accounts as well. It's worth noting we, we know a lot of people have been through your courses and have had just glowing endorsements about their experience. So it's a really, really valuable way to learn. So one of the questions we often or almost always ask our guests, Ryan, is what's inspiring you right now? Are there any books or podcasts or things, things that you're doing with your kids <laughs> that are inspiring you right now? I'm a big music fan, and I always go back to music as my inspiration. It's my escape I'm fortunate that good friends of ours write some terrific music. So they're a band called The Wind and the Wave. It's our friends, Patty and Dwight. And their lyrics just hit home. And then their sound is just one of a kind. And not only do they write great music, they have a great podcast called The Dwight and Patty Show. And it mm-hmm. talks about their process and, and how they go about writing and contributing I would say selfishly, I'm looking forward to another podcast too. And it's Patty from the band and then my wife, Sally, who's a psychotherapist. And they have a brand new podcast that I've I've already heard and gotten a sneak peek on called The Feelings Club. And so right now it is having a professional mental health professional and an artist speaking together and talking about particularly the, the creative process, ways that we can self-manage but also ways that we can get help when we're not able to. It's this great combination of mental health and creativity that is really inspiring for me now. And my kids, they are so resilient during this time where they don't get to see their friends and they don't get to hug their loved ones. And yet they bounce back every day. My four-year-old in particular wakes up every morning with just sunshine, ready to go, Maybe a little faster than uh, I, I would like, <laughs> but that energy that she has uh, is a joy to be around, and it sort of sets me back in my place. It resets me every day. <laughs> 